Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. We're going to begin a series talking about the Bible and the Scriptures, that it is a living, breathing book that is just as valid today as it was when it was written. Still speaks to us, still talks to us, still instructs us. And then after we've done that for a couple of messages, we'll talk about the, uh, the authority, and then we're going to talk about the revelation and the inspiration and illumination, and then we're going to talk about how do you study the Bible? How do you take a book and go into it and look at it and, and see what it says? What are the laws? What are the principles that you need to go when you're doing that? Just like a mathematician has certain things that he understands that are given formulas by which he works. They're also given formulas by which we interpret the Bible. That's how we keep from falling into heresy. That's how we keep from going off into error or going off to extremes is by following some set formulas that have been proven over time on how you study the Scripture. Now, I don't know how many Bibles you own, and I'm not sure how many Bibles I own. I own more than I probably need to own. I know I own at least 26 translations of the Bible. Some of them are good and some of them are lousy. There are different ways that the Bible is translated. There is a way to translate the scriptures where you translate it as literally as possible from the Greek to the English. That's why I preach primarily from the New American Standard. It is the best literal English translation that there is. Now, that sometimes means it doesn't read easily because you think, boy, if they just wrote it a little differently, it would flow better. But they're trying to interpret the scriptures from the Greek to the English in a way that is most literally in line with what the way the Greek and the Hebrew was written in the original language that the scripture was written in. Then there's a way to translate, which is more thought for thought, and it's written to be more readable. Now, uh, I'm going to do a little test here, and I'm almost afraid to do this test, okay? But I'm going to do a little test here. Uh, How many of you primarily use and bring to church the King James Bible? How many of you primarily use and bring to church King James? Okay. How many of you bring New American Standard? So see if 20 years has done me any good. Okay, it's done a little bit. Okay, Uh, how many of you bring New International? What that says right there, New International is really the Bible of this church uh, primarily. And, And that is the most popular translation. And the New International is a good translation if you compare it to other translations where it's got some weaknesses in its interpretation because... New International is made to be read easily. Now, in fact, you can get a chart and look at it, and and this is not an insult to anybody's intelligence. I'm just going to tell you the way it's done. The New International and the Good News and the Living Bible are all written to be read on about an eighth grade reading level. New American Standard is written to be read on at least an 11th grade or 12th grade reading level. So there's sometimes there's a translation done to try to get it down on the lowest possible reading level that we can get it on rather than being a a literal translation. Nothing wrong with New International. If you've got it, don't throw it away. It's like Layman Strauss said. Layman Strauss was a King James Version guy. 
And it's like Layman said, I am at home with the King James, but I like to visit other translations. So I'm at home with New American Standard. But there are times when I'm trying to get the feel of what the Bible is saying that I will go and visit another translation. I have a parallel message and New American Standard. The message sometimes is weak because it's a paraphrase. It's not meant to be a literal translation. I wouldn't study out of the message. I wouldn't study out of the living Bible or the new living. They're not study Bibles. They're good reading Bibles to make you familiar with what the scripture says. But when you come to the message, if you read the Psalms in the message, the heart of the psalmist comes out. The emotions are in the word. That's the way Eugene Peterson writes when he writes his books. And that's the way he paraphrased the Bible. The good news is a paraphrase. Uh, the living is a paraphrase. The message is a paraphrase. And there are ways that, and I'll try to help you with some of this. I've already lost some of you saying, I'm sticking with my Bible. I've got all my notes in it and you're not changing my mind. So now that we've gotten that settled, uh, Holman Christian Standard is not a great translation. And our denomination is using it in all our Sunday school literature and they're pushing a $6 million investment in a very average, average translation. In fact, in one particular place, the passage that I'm assigned to preach on at the pastor's conference in Louisville this year, it translates the word spirit as feeling. And spirit and feeling are not the same. The Holy Spirit is not a feeling. And so it's a very bad translation in that it's not just a weak, it's a bad translation in that point. Be aware of gender neutral Bibles. Okay? Because God, see, God's raining down his blessing on us right now. (laughs) Be aware of gender neutral Bibles because God revealed himself as a man. He didn't reveal himself as an it. There are times when it does not matter if it's a he or a she, but you better know which times it does matter when it's a he or a she when you're reading the Bible because it can dilute the authority of the Word of God if you don't stand on what the Word of God says. That's why the TNIV, today's NIV, is a bad translation. It's just a bad translation. Because it waters down things to make it politically correct. It is the most politically correct translation written in the last 50 years. And it's written to soothe Americans who want everything to be equal. And it's an equal rights translation is basically what it is. And God is not into equal rights. God's into him being sovereign. And uh, he made us like we are. He made us with our differences. And we should celebrate our differences. I'm glad that there are differences between us. Male and female, aren't you? Good. Some of you will get to go home tonight with your spouse. I remember Ron Dunn, he walked in my study one day and he he picked up my Bible and he went. This one is published by Tyndall. I said, how'd you know? He said, every publisher has a smell about their leather. He said, I can pick up a Bible and smell the leather and tell you who published that Bible. 
You know, I know people that have been in church for 30 years and can't pick up their Bible and immediately find the Ten Commandments because they're not that familiar with their Bible. And so what we're going to look at is how to address this problem of biblical illiteracy because I believe we're in a time of biblical illiteracy. We don't know what the Bible says. The Bible's been taken out of our schools. Consequences are people can rewrite history. Nobody can do anything about it because nobody knows what the Bible says historically. The Bible is not a history book, but when it speaks to history, it speaks accurately. The Bible is not a science book, but when it speaks to science, it speaks accurately. We're going to talk about that in a, in a later message. But I am very concerned about the issue of biblical illiteracy, that we don't know our Bibles, that we own them, but we don't know how to read them and study them and appreciate them. One of the things I do appreciate when I came here, I did not have to fight the battle of inerrancy. My predecessor had already laid the groundwork about the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture And I didn't have to fight that battle. And the best I know, I've never had to fight that battle. In fact, it says in our Constitution and bylaws, which we changed in 1990, it said that you cannot teach Sunday school in this church or serve in any leadership position or be a staff member or be the pastor of this church. If you deny the inerrancy of Scripture, you will be removed from your position immediately, from the pastor all the way down. It's that important. It is that important. And so when I step out of the authority of the Word of God, I'm stepping into some deep, deep trouble. And so I want to ask you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1 because Paul writing to Timothy, his young protege that he was mentoring, Paul writing to Timothy, uh, he he knew what was coming. And he said, there's going to come a day, 2 Timothy 3, 1. Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. And I would submit to you that that holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, is the greatest problem listed in all of that. Because you see, we can pray, God bless America, and we can say, pray for this and pray for that. But the truth of the matter is, until we understand the times in which we live, we need to understand that God calls all this evil. It's not just a character trait. It's not just a personality flaw. God calls it evil. And and so Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says, this is going to happen in the last days. Now, we've all heard the last days, and you'll hear a preacher preaching on prophecy and second coming. We're living in the last days. And somebody will say, well, you know, you'll go to Sunday school class. Somebody said, eh, they've been talking about the last days. My grandma talked about the last days, and that was 50 years ago. We're not in the last days. Well, let me explain to you what the Bible means by last days. Last days began when Jesus showed up. And the last days will end when he comes back. We have been in the last days for 2,000 years. You say, well, that's not days. That's millennia's. <laughs> In God's eyes, it's days. 
Because God says in the last days, these things are going to start happening. Now, here's what we learn from studying Scripture. These cycles repeat because the one thing we learn from history is we learn nothing from history. These cycles repeat and they get worse. That's why no civilization that was strong a thousand years ago is strong today. That's why America, unless there is revival and a great work of God, will be a second-rate country before some of us have died. Because we learn nothing from history. We learn nothing from studying the Roman Empire. We know, learn nothing from studying the Greeks. And we learn nothing from studying this Bible. You could study the book of Judges and figure out that men in cycles go from pleading out to God to help, to going into serving other gods, to going into sin, to going into servitude, to pleading to God to help. God delivers them and then they go into sin and they go into servitude and they serve other gods. The cycle is all in the book of Judges. You can see how civilizations work. And they've worked that way since the time of Joshua. And so the last days are the days in which we live. So you... Because you'll have people say today what people said then. Where are the signs of his coming? They're all around us. What did Jesus say about the time in which he would come? He said, in the day which I will come, it will be like the days of Noah. What were they doing in the days of Noah? They were eating and drinking and marrying and going about their business, watching their stock market reports, everything we're doing. They were doing in some way, some form, or some shape. They were doing the same thing we're doing. And Jesus said, in a day like that, when people are not expecting it, I will come like a thief in the night. But he's coming as a thief in the night, telling us in the process that we are in the last days. And so Paul tells Timothy that we're going through this. Then Paul deals with two specific people that he wants to address who fit this pattern. And then he closes beginning in verse 12 by exhorting Timothy to stay with what he knows. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I was in youth ministry when the battle of the Bible began to take place in Southern Baptist life. I have pleaded with numerous people in our convention to sit down with the leaders of our convention in the 1970s and early 80s and videotape them talking about the battle for the Southern Baptist Convention when the Southern Baptist Convention was highly moderate and liberal in many areas and the battles that were waged and fought to regain the focus of this denomination. We are the only mainline stream uh, evangelical denomination that has ever come back from a path toward liberalism. It's never happened before. It has not happened in the Presbyterian church. It's not happened in the 
Methodist church. It's not happened in any other evangelical church. We're the only one that that's ever happened to. I'm afraid we're in danger of forgetting what's happened. And I have begged with people, sit down with these men and interview them. Why were you so passionate about this? Why were you willing to receive hate mail and threats and everything else about the Bible? Why didn't you just leave well enough alone and not cause such a stir? We had days when I remember sitting in Dallas with 49,000 people at the Southern Baptist Convention voting on a president, and it was a choice between somebody who was extremely moderate and casual in his view on moral values and somebody who was very committed to the inerrancy of Scripture. And that vote got down to about a 51 to 49% vote. That's how close we were to losing this denomination. We have not videotaped them. And now W.A. Criswell's dead, Adrian Rogers is dead, and they are getting older and they are dying, and nobody's doing it. And there will arise a generation that does not know God or Joshua or anything that happened because they will have forgotten the battle that's been fought. I have begged people. I'm just telling you because I'm frustrated. I have begged people, videotape these men sitting in a room talking about the Bible and why that battle was important and put it in every college and every seminary that we've got and demand that before you can graduate, you've got to watch this to know that you are standing on the shoulders of giants and you better not get your sledgehammer out and start knocking those walls down when men bled over this. And it's been largely ignored because we are so foolish, even those of us who believe in inerrancy are so foolish to believe that because we believe it, the next generation and the generation after that will believe it because they'll get it by osmosis. And they won't understand and appreciate what's going on. And the battles that have been fought. We, we fought a battle over those things. I, I told you this before. But I'm going to tell you again because I got rebuked by people I went to college with. I wrote an article back in the early 90s about my time in seminary and about my Old Testament professor in seminary who, who said that any book written by Broadman Press, which is now Broadman and Holman, any book written by Broadman Press is just as inspired as any book written in the Old Testament. Now... I'm a dumb boy from Mississippi, but I know that's not true. I mean, I just know that's not true because I've written a book for Broadman Press and it's not as inspired as any book of the Old Testament. I would never have the gall or the audacity to say Michael Catt is equal to Isaiah. I mean, are you kidding me? (laughs) Are you kidding me? So there's the authority of the scripture. And largely that battle was an external battle with forces trying to influence. Neo-Orthodoxy came in in the 18th century and to undermine the scriptures. And we became uh, impressed, if you will, by German theologians who taught us to do textual criticism and higher criticism and lower criticism. And and there is a place for some of that in some ways. But anything that has as its second word criticism is probably not a good thing. Because when you approach the Bible with a method that has the word criticism in it, it's probably not going to elevate Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, or the Word of God. 
Now, there's a place for the study of those things, but when neo-orthodoxy came in and liberalism came in, the whole goal was to undermine the Scripture, and it's no different than what Thomas Jefferson did when he read the Bible and he cut out of his Bible everything that he believed was not actually spoken by Jesus or didn't pertain to Jesus. He pretty well cut out most of the four Gospels. I was in Williamsburg, Virginia a number of years ago, and there was a man there who was a Jeffersonian expert, and he was there talking. And so I just decided that I would be devil's advocate, and I asked him as a Jeffersonian expert, why did you cut out so much of the Gospels as if you knew that Jesus didn't say those things? And this guy didn't like the fact that I asked that question. By the way, Jefferson didn't like the fact that that question was asked of him either. See, Jefferson was a fallible man. He's a great leader for our country, but a fallible man in his theology. Because Jefferson wanted a God who was rational and who could be explained. And so he didn't believe any of the miracles. He didn't believe anything that was supernatural about Jesus. And so you've got to ask yourself, did he really know the Lord? So, I want to give you four things tonight that have to be a part of your DNA if you're going to understand, appreciate, and study the Scriptures. Number one, we have no right, we have no right to hold a different view of the Bible than was held by Jesus. We have no right to hold a different view of the Bible than was held by Jesus. Now, that's first base. And you can't get around this ball field, first, second, third, and home. You can't get around this ball field if you skip first base. We don't have a right. I don't have the right. I don't have the authority to say anything about the Bible that Jesus didn't say. You see, the authority of the Scriptures rests on the authority of the Savior. And so I don't have a right to hold a different view of the Bible than Jesus did. I don't have the right to say that the Bible is inconsistent when Jesus affirmed its consistency. So I, 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 I can't accept what the Bible says about... Now listen, stay with me on this one. I can't accept what the Bible says about Christ and then not accept what Christ says about the Bible. Does that make sense? I, I can't accept, oh, Christ is the Savior. People need to be saved. They need to come through Jesus Christ. But I don't believe all the Bible. Well, Jesus did. So I can't say I accept Christ as being who he said he is if I don't accept what he said was true about the Bible. And, and he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He said not one dotting of the I or crossing of the T. When Jesus referred to the scriptures, he was referring to the Old Testament. When Paul said all scripture is inspired by God, the New Testament had not been put together by then. Probably only the Gospel of Mark had been written at that time when Paul wrote these letters. Maybe one of the other Gospels had been written, but probably not. Probably only Mark. And when Paul said all scripture is inspired by God, he was referring to Genesis through Malachi. He was not referring to the book of Acts. Because it had not been included and thought of as scripture at that point. Because scripture was being written at that time by Paul and by Peter and by John and by Matthew and by Mark. Who was listening to Simon Peter as he wrote that gospel. 
And so I can't say anything about the Bible that, that Jesus doesn't. So I can't say that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the bodily expression of the fullness of God, God in flesh, that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom that he was in the beginning and say that he has the final word on marriage and the final word on morality and the final word on sin and the final word on creation and then come and say, but I don't believe the first 11 books of chapters of Genesis. Or I think there were two Isaiahs that wrote Isaiah. Or I don't believe that Moses wrote the first five books. Or I don't believe that Joshua really lived. Or I don't believe this or I don't believe that. I don't believe that Jonah was inside of a fish. You see, that's just, that's just some story that was made up. And somebody wrote a book and put his name on it about Jonah. Jesus believed the story of Jonah. Hello? So, unless I'm willing to knock Jesus off the throne, I don't have a right to say anything different about Jonah than Jesus said about Jonah. In fact, he used Jonah as a picture of being in the grave for three days and then coming out. As happened with Jonah, this is what's going to happen with me. He quoted Moses. He quoted the book of Deuteronomy, written by Moses more than any other book that he quoted. He quoted the book of Deuteronomy. Almost every book in the Old Testament is quoted somewhere. Some verse out of the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament. So Jesus had a high view of Scripture. And if time and archaeology have proven anything, they've proven the validity. Hello. The validity of Scripture. Jesus said in John 10, 35, the scriptures cannot be broken. You remember Jesus talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and, the, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to, the, to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He didn't demythologize the legends. He said, you read Moses and the prophets, they're talking about me. So Jesus honored the word of God. I can't say anything about the Bible that Jesus doesn't say. Secondly, we have no right to hold a different view of the Bible than the apostles did. We have no right to hold a different view of the Bible than the apostles did. Now, some kids were asking a school class one day, you know, what are the epistles? And this kid said, they're the wives of the apostles. I don't have any right to hold a different view of the Bible than the apostles did. Now, let's just look at this for a minute. Through Acts and the epistles, the apostles affirmed the authority of Jesus and the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. But not only that, Paul said, I am declaring to you that which I have received. Paul didn't say, I'm declaring to you that which I thought up the other day. Paul said, it was given to me by God, and I'm giving it to you the way God gave it to me. Peter talked about the more sure word of the prophets. Remember when Peter says, we have the more sure word of the prophets. Here's Peter who has been on the Mount of Transfiguration, has seen the glorification of Jesus. And Peter says, more than my experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, more than my experience of walking in and seeing the empty tomb, more than what... I did and saw and heard and sensed when I walked this earth with Jesus. I have a word greater than my experience. It's the more sure word of the prophets. 
Even Simon Peter said, if I was going to have to make a stand on something, I would stand on the prophets because I may have missed something. I may not have gotten it all. I have the more sure word of the prophets. The the scriptures are not a hodgepodge of philosophies and thoughts thrown together from other cultures. Uh, I'm reading a book right now. It's it's an interesting book that I'm trying to figure out where the guy is. It's called The Bible is History. And you realize that every culture in the world has a flood story. And so, uh, and then you go to Ur the Chaldees and they've uh, done archaeological work in Ur the Chaldees. And where did Abraham come from? It's a very affluent area. Whereas in Egypt, homes would have had two or three rooms in the affluent areas of Egypt. When Abraham left Ur the Chaldees, he left an area where most of the homes had 12 to 15 rooms in them. A very rich, wealthy. It'd be like living on Long Island or in Beverly Hills. I mean, extensively rich people in every way you can imagine. And so when God said, get up and go to a place where you don't know where you're going, and I'll tell you where you're going when you need to know, when Abraham left something to walk by faith. He didn't say, well, you know, one tent in one land is as good as another tent in another land. I mean, he left something to follow God by faith. And so archaeology proves a lot of things, and then this guy tries to go in and anyway, he's, he'll find out he's wrong one day. Galatians 1.11. Galatians 1.11. And I want you to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 11. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Second Peter chapter three and verse 15, Peter acknowledges that Paul was writing the scriptures. 2 Peter 3.15. Peter says what Paul is writing is the word of God. God has given it to him. Now we'll talk about what it means for the word of God to be God-breathed in the next message. But God inspired these men of old to write down these words. And the apostles held a high view of the Old Testament. They believed that God had spoken through Moses and through the prophets. And God had revealed himself in an incredible way. Since the beginning of time, no man dead who has a book out or alive should be listened to who does not stand where Jesus and the apostles stand on the word of God. You're just wasting your time. Well, they have some good thoughts. Well, a lot of people have good thoughts, but that doesn't mean I'm going to follow them off a cliff. Thirdly, we never discover all God has for us. We never discover all God has for us without first embracing the truth and authority of Scripture. 
We never discover all God has for us. In other words, you're, you're, we've been in this series, What's Stopping You? You're never going to discover all God has for you until you embrace the authority of Scripture. Until God said, you know, you remember that bumper sticker that was around years ago? God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Hey, it's settled whether you believe it or not. God said it, that settles it. I believe it has nothing to do with it. We never move forward. You have to believe it to understand it. And so if our attitude is ever, well, I don't think that ought to be there. Or I don't like that. Or I don't believe that Moses did that. Or I don't believe that the prophets said that. Or I don't believe that David did that. And I don't believe that Solomon said that. And I don't believe that Jesus really did this. Then you're never going to understand the Bible. Because you're not approaching it with the eyes of faith. And you're not approaching it with a teachable spirit. You're not approaching it to hear and to receive and to learn from what God has to say to you out of his word. It, what, what it means is if I approach the Bible as anything other than the Bible and say, Lord, speak to me out of your word, I've already decided that God can't speak to me. Because I'm going to read it with, well, I don't think that ought to be there. I don't think that should be there. I don't, I don't like that. Our, our attitude needs to be, what is God trying to say to me? What is God trying to teach me? What does God want me to learn? What sin does God want me to confess? What truth does God want me to embrace? What application do I need to make to my life? The purpose of Bible study, by the way, is not to see how much you can get done, but to see how much you can get out of what you're doing. It's not, okay, all right, today I'm going to start a study of the book of Job, and and I'm going to study it all and get everything out of it by tomorrow at noon. So I'm going to read it all. Hey, you may be doing a study and you may stop on one verse and it may eat your lunch for a week. You see, God wants to speak to us out of his word. And when he's got the authority to speak, then it makes a difference in how we hear. And I want to hear because he's got something he wants to say to me. And there... Don't let me chase this rabbit long. There is a whole movement in our culture. I was talking about it with a pastor friend today at lunch. There's a whole movement in our culture to de-emphasize preaching. Uh, There's a church in America that has a drive-through sermon. Really. They meet in an old bank. You can drive through. The pastor will speak to you for three to five minutes, and then you can be on your way. Uh, We need sermons that are shorter. We need sermons that are less than 20 minutes because people's attention spans. Hey, it's not my fault people want to be stupid. You spend more than 20 minutes trying to figure out line two on page four of your income tax return. So we, we don't want the authority of Scripture. We, want the, we don't want preachers who say, thus says the Lord, and he doesn't really care what you think. And so people gravitate now, even believers gravitate to a preacher that will take them to the lowest common denominator that will make them feel comfortable with living outside of the will of God rather than pursuing the will of God in their lives. We see it happening all the time. And, and so now... The, We don't have preachers anymore. We have life coaches and communicators. Well, I'm a communicator, 
But I can't find anywhere in the Bible where it says, communicate the word. It says, preach the word. And so since God knew what he was doing when he had Paul write that down, I'll stick with preach the word. Now, I know what it means, and I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to fight a battle over whether I'm a communicator or a preacher or, or a life coach or whatever, and all of those things apply, but I want to tell you something. When I die, put that I was a preacher on my tombstone because I don't want anybody to walk by and say, he was a communicator. Wonder what he communicated. What did he talk about? I want it to be clear what I talked about. I was a preacher, and I'm not ashamed to be one. Regardless of what some people do to it, I'm not ashamed to be one. By the way, do you know why preachers stand on a wooden platform, elevated above the crowd? Do you know why they do that? It's in the Bible. Nehemiah chapter 8. Don't turn to it right now, but Nehemiah chapter 8. Ezra, when they discovered the word of God, which they had not heard in years and years and years, they commanded Ezra to come out and read the law. And they put Ezra on an elevated wooden platform. And on that platform, he read from beginning and early in the morning. You think I'm long-winded. Ezra read the law of God from beginning early in the morning until noontime, until midday. And the people stood and listened and fell on their faces and wept and worshiped God because they heard the word of God. And Nehemiah came to them and it says the Levites were interpreting to them the law. That's exegesis. That's interpreting what God says. This is what God says. This is what he meant. That's an exegesis of scripture. It says they were interpreting it. And Nehemiah said, quit crying. This is a great day. This is a day to celebrate because we've discovered the word of God. Listen, worship begins in the word. And, and I, can, I can just tell you, this is my humble and accurate opinion, which I highly respect. I can just tell you, your time in the word has a great influence on how ready you are to worship when you walk in here on Sunday. If you've had rich time with the Lord this week and your time alone with God, if you've had rich time with the Lord in the Word, if you've let God stir your heart in the Word, I promise you when Mark stands up and says, Good morning, church. Man, you're ready. Let's go kick it. Don't start in first gear. Let's get to fourth gear and let's get humming around this track, buddy. And we don't have to stand up and say, when you're excited about what God has said to you and you gather with other people that are excited about what God has said to them, you don't have to say, don't you think we ought to worship God today? Man, everybody's ready to go. I mean, it's like, you know, Vance Havner said, I'd rather calm down a fanatic than breathe life into a corpse. The word of God. If I accept it as the word of God, then it can speak to me. You see, I don't sit in judgment over the scripture. The scripture sits in judgment over me. Just a few weeks ago, we were at Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found by a shepherd boy. The reason they were preserved is because it's such a dry climate. They found them in those jars. Every book but one, a, a fragment of every book of the Old Testament but one was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the reason that finding was so incredible is that those manuscripts predate by at least a thousand years previous manuscripts that have been found. And if there are inconsistencies, and we will talk about this as we get into this, 
If there are inconsistencies in the word, it is either the result of one of two things, a poor translation or an interpretation. It is not the problem with the original text. What we believe to be inerrant and infallible is not the King James, not the New American Standard, not the NIV. What is inerrant and infallible are the original manuscripts, God speaking to men and them writing down what they did. And when you read, if you ever read the process that the transcribers of Scripture had to go through to make copies of the Scripture and realize how meticulous it was, you would understand how God has protected his word. For instance, let's say, uh, give, me a, give me your piece of paper. Just give me your piece of paper, Stephen, and your pen for just a second. Okay, Stephen's been taking these notes. Not bad notes. That's an old sermon. All right, and, and so Stephen's got right here, read Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret, and he's got the little apostrophe over Taylor. Hudson Taylor, Taylor's. Little Mark, S, Hudson Taylor's spiritual secret. If he was transcribing the scripture and he left off that little Mark, then the, after he was the copyist, the person would come behind him and read it. And they so valued and treasured the word of God that copyists would not go in and say, oh, Stephen, I love him, but he made a mistake. And then add that little mark right up above S. They would throw away the whole copy and start over again because the word of God could have no errors in it at all in the transcribing from one copy to the next. One line wrong, one dot of ink in the wrong place, and the whole scroll would be destroyed. For hundreds of years... The Bible handed down from scroll to scroll to generation to generation and there would be copyists and then there would be somebody that would come along and compare with the original that they had written from. And if there was one line, one dot, one mark, one smudge where it wasn't supposed to be, they would tear up or burn that copy because it was invalid and inaccurate. That's how committed they were to the accuracy of the word of God. You know, they didn't have spell check. They had to manually do it all to meticulously give us the word of God. Listen, there are over 5,300 known Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, over 10,000 of the Latin Vulgate, and at least 9,300 other early versions. We have over 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament in existence today. Secular scholars say that they possess substantial information about the true text. Now listen, secular scholars say they possess substantial information about the true text of the principal Greek and Roman writers, including Sophocles and Cicero. Yet, all of that is based on the number of manuscripts that you could count on your two hands. Nobody debates. You will not sit in a college or university class and have anybody say, we doubt if Cicero or Sophocles wrote these great writings. It's taken as a matter of fact from less than 10 manuscripts. We have 24,000 manuscripts 
of just the New Testament. Case closed. The jury can rend its verdict. This is the word of God. And those manuscripts agree with each other. One doesn't say one thing and another say the other thing. We have more authority of the scripture of any book of any kind at any time by anyone on any subject. And that will give you some confidence in the word of God. Lastly, the Bible doesn't need to be defended. It just needs to be declared. Now, I've done a lot of defending of the scripture tonight, but I'm helping you to learn how to defend it in your own heart so you can declare it with your lips. The Bible doesn't need to be defended. It just needs to be declared. Most of you are familiar with the story of Billy Graham who went through a time of doubting and thinking, you know, is, is the Bible really the word of God? Is this what I'm supposed to believe? The, the, the movie Billy, there's this uh, dual storyline between Templeton who was a great evangelist at the time when Billy Graham was first getting started and, and he was drawing tens and 20,000 people and could have people in the palm of his hand. He was a great orator and Templeton began to believe that the Bible wasn't the word of God. And Billy Graham, because of his great respect for Templeton and for others, had a season when he began to doubt the word of God. These are Billy's words. He went into the woods and he stayed along with God until God spoke to him. This is what Billy said. I've seen enough of the transforming ability of this word to know that you are behind it. I know, Lord, there are many questions, many areas that I do not understand about this book. And take it by faith that it is your word and believe it and preach it as your word and trust that you will make clear to me what it means. And so what is Billy Graham known for for 60 years of ministry? The Bible says... The Bible says, the Bible says, where did he come to that conviction alone with God? And he doesn't defend it when he preaches. He just declares it. Spurgeon was asked about the word of God. And he said, the Bible is like a lion. Whoever heard of defending a lion, just let it loose and let it be a lion. You don't have to debate with people about the Word of God. The Word of God stands on its own. And listen, the power is not in your debating the Word of God. The power is in the Word of God. Amen. The power is in the Word. Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. He didn't say, if I defend the deity of Jesus and if I defend that. And you may get in some situations where you have to. But most of the time, all you got to do is lift him up. And he'll draw men to himself. So my job as a pastor is not to defend the Bible. It's just to tell you what the Bible says. Vance Havner went through a season in his life when he began to doubt the word. And I, I, I don't know that, especially with sometimes when we go off to college, we begin to doubt some things about the word of God or wonder if, you know, what our third grade Sunday school teacher told us is true. And folks, that's why it is important that we have people teach our children the word of God. Because when they walk out into this world, they're going to be bombarded with people that don't believe it and don't respect it. And if we don't give them good grounding, that's what we do at SCA. That's what we do in our children's ministry. That's what we do in our youth ministry is we want to give them good grounding. We're not just babysitting our preschoolers and our children and our young people we're trying to get them grounded so they're not a casualty when they go off but Havner began to doubt the word of God and he said I started doing little talks for 
civic organizations and playing the piano for them and doing these little talks and using some witty humor and stuff. And he got on a train with R.A. Torrey one day. And he recognized Dr. Torrey. And Havner had been pastoring a church and he'd been falling into liberalism. This was in the 1920s. And he'd been falling into liberalism and been teaching some things that were not true with the Word of God. And he saw Dr. Torrey on this train and he sat down with the great R.A. Torrey and he introduced himself. And Torrey asked him, he said, Young man, what are you doing? And Havner said, Oh, I'm doing a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And I'm doing some of this and some of that. And he said, Torrey put his finger in my face and said, Young man, decide what you're going to do and get on with it. And about that time, Vance Havner read a book. And that book changed his life. It was about liberalism that was moving through the country. In fact, I think Broadman Holman reprinted that book. We used to have it in the source. The title is escaping me right now. It's something in Christianity and Liberalism. That's the title of it. And uh, he read that book and he went out in the woods. Isn't it amazing what God teaches you in the woods? He went out in the woods and he settled it with God that he was going to preach the word of God. He went back to the church he had pastored, resigned from, and asked them for permission to come back and preach the Bible as it is. He said, I told you wrong. I misled you. I'm asking you to forgive me and let me come back. And he said, I went to that church and stayed for another three years to try to straighten out what I'd messed up in the five years before because I knew I'd misled them. See, if I believe the Bible is the word of God, then I need to declare it. That means that everybody I meet this week is either saved or lost. That means that everybody I meet this week is either going to heaven or going to hell. That means that everything I do this week matters to God. That means that everything I say this week, God hears. That means that the way I treat people this week, God knows. That means that I'm accountable more than to this church or more than to my wife. I stand accountable before a holy God about how I live my life. And so I need to be careful about how I live. And I can tell you that the greatest thing we can do as God's people is to get a grasp on the Word of God so that we always have a word in season and out of season. We're always ready to declare that which God has spoken to our hearts and that He speaks to us out of the overflow of what He has told us privately. We have something to say. Because you see, when you study the Word of God and you get in a situation where you're talking to somebody in this world and you don't know what to say, I promise you from your study, a verse will come to mind that you didn't know, even know you remembered. And God will give it to you in that moment. He'll give you a word in a fit time, in a season when you need it, when you didn't know that it was even there. But out of your consistent study of the Word of God and applying of the Word of God and praying through the Word of God, God will give you the words that you need to declare him. I'm not a Bible worshiper. I don't worship this book, but I worship the God who inspired this book and loved me enough to say, I'm going to write some things down so that you won't forget what I've got to say to you. You know, one of the things I appreciated about my dad 
is somewhere, I don't know, it was probably in the 19, late 1960s, early 1970s, my dad decided to start reading the Bible through every year. He didn't have a Bible reading plan. By the way, you can read four chapters a day and read the Bible through in nine and a half months. Four chapters a day. That's less than 20 minutes. Four chapters a day, you can read the Bible through in less than 10 months. And my dad started reading the Bible through every year. And about the time my dad started doing that, Terry and I went to work with Charlie Draper, who was a pastor at First Baptist Church in Yukon, Oklahoma. And we went to work there, I think it was around January, when we went, like first Sunday in January, we went to work there. And Charlie sat me down and said, I want to tell you one of my disciplines that I do. And Charlie was the, one of the finest expositors I've ever met in my life. He had a photographic memory. He's got about 165 IQ. It's frightening to be around him. And Charlie said, every year I read the Bible from a new translation. And that particular year he was reading it from reading the Jerusalem Bible. He said, but I read the Bible through every year. And I learned from my dad and from Charlie Draper that if I want to have something to say, I better make sure that what I say is based on this. My dad never taught a Sunday school class. Never. I don't remember that my dad ever led one Bible study. But I can tell you that I know for a fact that my dad, as a layman who sat about halfway back in the church, read his Bible more than my pastor did. And so if I really wanted to get some advice, I probably would have gone to my dad. Dads, let me ask you something. Would your kids come to you for biblical advice or would they just bypass you because they know you're not reading it and go find David or Garrett or John or me or somebody else? We should want to be as adults such students of the word that our kids know I can go to mom and dad and they've been in the word and if they don't know the answer they'll find it and if they can't find it they'll find somebody who will find it but the first person I can go to for an answer about what God has to say and why God says what he says is my parents that's the way you raise the next generation to love the word of God is that we don't pass the ball and say go find somebody else let them tell you but that they can come to us and ask us first. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Kett. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.